1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth from a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have given us your word so that we might know the truth and so that we might know you. And so I do pray for us this morning as we look at First Peter. Lord, would you speak to us and 
and help us learn what it means to follow you, to be your disciple. I pray that you would give us boldness and great joy in our identity. I pray that you would also be with our brothers and sisters over at Grace Point Christian Church. As the word is preached there, would you speak to them and strengthen them? And I pray that they would be filled with joy that is inexpressible as they receive the word, as they hear the gospel preached to them. Would you be with Pastor Stephen? I pray that you would give him your word, and I pray that he would speak boldly and that he would that he would rightly handle your word as well. And so, Lord, would you minister to our, our brothers and sisters there? And also, would you be with our missionaries, Cameron and Christus, as they, Kristen, as they minister to, to college students? I pray that you would um, strengthen them for this work. Um, they recognize that this work is greater than them and that the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. And so they're asking that you would raise up more workers for the ministry there. And so would you provide every need that they have. And I pray that your word would go forth even among the college campus. And I pray that you would save your people. And Lord, would you be with us as well this morning? Be with, be with me as I preach your word. I feel weak. And yet I know your power is made perfect through weakness. And so I do pray that you would use me this morning, keep me from error. And I pray that your word would go forth and and that it would encourage us, strengthen us, and ultimately glorify your name. So in all these things, we trust you, and we look to you for help. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, surely all of us know a thing or two about being homesick. About a decade ago, I got to spend a month away in Israel and Jordan. Uh, it was a fun season, a fun time of life where I got to, to learn and study there. Uh, but during my time away, I had this longing to come back home to America. Especially, I had this craving for American food. I was tired of eating falafel day after day, and what I wanted more than anything was a cheeseburger. I remember one day, my friend and I, as we were getting to just spend some time alone away from the rest of our group, we found a pizza restaurant, and while it wasn't a hamburger or a cheeseburger, it seemed at least reminiscent enough of home, so I was eager to buy myself a slice of pizza, but I was quickly disappointed when I was served nothing more than what was apparently pita with melted cheese on the top of it. Quite different from my American interpretation of pizza, at least. But we know, to some degree or another, what it feels like to be homesick, don't we? Whether it's missing the familiarity of our hometown or missing the taste of a home-cooked meal when you're on the road for days on end, and maybe it's even just missing our own bed, the comforts of home. Well, as Christians, we also feel homesick, even when we're at home. This happens when our culture feels countercultural to us. We feel homesick, even though we're at home, when the laws of our land oppose the law of the Lord that is written on our hearts. We feel homesick even when we are at home when the authorities rebel against the authority of King Jesus. 
being homesick while being at home is the experience of Christians throughout the ages. And that's what 1 Peter's all about. We're starting our series this morning called Living in Exile. And our scripture this morning serves us well to introduce some of the themes that we're going to see repeated throughout this letter. So look at verses 1 and 2. Actually, just verse 1. I want to point two things about that we see right away. It starts like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I want to point out who this letter is from and who this letter is to. It's addressed from Peter, an apostle of Christ. If you're familiar with the gospel account, then you know who Peter is. He was one of the 12 disciples that Jesus called to follow him. And while plenty more could be said about Peter this morning, I want us to see two things about Peter that he tells us from this letter. First, in chapter 5, he tells us that he is a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And we know that. We know that he followed Jesus and that he even denied Jesus three times as he was there watching Jesus go to the cross. But we also know that he didn't stay away from Jesus. Jesus restored him, which leads us to this. When he restored him, he, he was restored. and He was an apostle sent by Christ to shepherd the flock, to feed his lambs. And so as he introduces himself here in this letter, he calls himself an apostle of Christ. That is, he is Christ-appointed messenger to bring the good news of the risen Savior to God's people. And as such, he has the authority to speak on behalf of Christ. And so when we hear the words of First Peter, we're not hearing just the words of a man's opinions, but we hear the very word of God as Peter himself has the authoritative words that come from God as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit in writing this letter. So that's who this letter is from. Now consider who this letter is to. Look again at verse 1. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, and Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I want us to look at a map because these places probably mean nothing to most of us. Uh, here on the, the left side of the screen, you'll see in red the region to where this letter was sent. Peter's not writing in this letter to a localized church body. And this is quite different compared to what we've been reading from Paul. When Paul wrote, typically he was writing to specific people or a specific church community in a specific city that was facing specific situations. But Peter, by contrast, is writing to a huge region there in Asia Minor. He, he's writing to Christians who are all sharing a very similar experience. Which brings us to how he identifies them. Look again at verse 1. He says he's writing to the elect exiles. And I want to see ourselves here in this address this morning. If you are a Christian, then I want you to understand you are an elect exile. So I want us to walk away having an understanding of what this means. And it has particular implications for our relationship with the world, with the society that we live in. And I also want us to rightly see who we are now in relation to God just as well. So let's consider the implications of what this means to be God's elect 
exiles. If you are a Christian, then know this. Know that you are an exile in the world. Now this word exile is loaded with meaning for Peter. This word was loaded with meaning for the people of Israel. And so let's try to understand what he's getting at and also what he's not saying. Even right here, he, he talks about the elect exiles that are in the dispersion. This, this word dispersion is very closely related to our word exile. The dispersion, this, this is a title that was used to refer to the Greek-speaking Jews that never returned back to Jerusalem after their exile in Babylon. And yet it doesn't seem like Peter's actually writing to Jews, and so it doesn't seem like his term elect exiles in the dispersion. It doesn't seem like he's meaning this as a technical term for Jewish people who haven't returned to Jerusalem. Just read ahead in 1 Peter 2.10, and you'll get the sense that he's probably writing to Gentiles. Most scholars agree that he is. Listen to 1 Peter 2.10. He says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And there's a few other texts that we could look at as well that lead us to the same conclusion. But, but it seems like Peter's using this exile, this dispersion language figuratively, which is why we can see ourselves in this text, even though we aren't at exile. We should see ourselves in this text because we are spiritual exiles. Now, I said this term exile is loaded with meaning, so let's try to make sure we don't misunderstand the meaning as well. Because in the Old Testament, God's people were exiled as a direct result of their disobedience to God. And this is important for two reasons that we don't think that, he's, that Peter's referring to exile as a, a way of God's punishment for our disobedience. It's not in Peter's meaning here. And this is important for two reasons. First, because... If you believe in Jesus and have repented of your sins, then know this, that the Father will not punish you for your sin because your sin has already been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. So that the idea of punishment and exile are not what Peter is saying. And furthermore, we can see this directly in this text, just in verse 14 of this chapter, he calls his audience, these exiles, he calls them obedient children. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And so if you think that Peter has this idea of punishment as a result of this exile, as a result of punishment, God's punishment for our disobedience, you got the wrong idea. But instead, I want us to see this. Peter's use of exile, what he's meaning, what he wants us to see is that there is pressure and even there may be persecution from the world around us. Recount Daniel's experience when he was in Babylon. He was in exile. You'll remember Daniel was faced with the pressure when he was offered unclean food from the king's table that was forbidden for him to eat there under the Old Testament law. And you'll even remember the persecution that Daniel's friends faced when they refused to worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden image that was set before them. Peter very similarly wants us to see ourselves as exiles because we are under pressure and persecution from the world because of our righteousness. Not because of disobedience, but because of our righteousness. Listen to how he says in chapter 3. Now who is to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. 
Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. You do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good than that should be if if that should be God's will, excuse me, than for doing evil. So here's what I want us to get straight. As we see ourselves as exiles here in, in the world, our exile is not a result of God's punishment for sin, but rather our exile is a result of the world hating us because we are righteous, because we love God, because we love his ways and we obey him. And seeing yourself as an exile this morning will help you understand your status in the world. So let us draw some implications now of what it means for you to be in exile. There are three implications that I want us to see this morning. First of all, if you are in exile, then the world's ways will be repulsive to you. We even know this in our own day and age that there's some American things that we do that other cultures think are strange and weird and even there are things that other people do in other parts of the world that we think are strange. Take for example places in the world where it's not unusual to eat dogs and cats. That's strange and even if it was set before me I don't know if I would really want to eat it. So very similarly, the practices of the world will be strange to those who are Christians, those who are exiles in the world. And not just strange, but it will even be offensive and repulsive to you. Take, for example, the world's love of riches. This would be strange to you if you are seeking first the kingdom of God. The writer of Hebrews says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Take another example, the world's tolerance for immorality and immodesty. It should be strange to us, though it's common in our day and age to see women that are dressed immodestly. First Timothy says it this way, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty. So it should be strange to us when we see the world so countercultural. But even more so, it should be even offensive when we see the world celebrate sexual immorality. And there are so many ways in which we might talk about that, whether it be sex outside of marriage, or whether it be the celebration of so-called same-sex marriage. Scriptures are so clear on this matter. Take Hebrews 13, for example, let the marriage bed be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Again, something strange, not even just strange, but just repulsive and offensive to us would be the world's fight for a woman's right to abort a baby. We understand that, that a baby is a life that God has created. So as the world celebrates this and fights for this, we should think it's strange and offensive and repulsive. Are not the world ways strange to us? Listen to how even David reflected about the world as he himself thought about his own love for God and his way in Psalm 26. He says, I do not sit with men of falsehood. I do not consort with hypocrites. 
I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Some of us are just far too comfortable being in the world. But Paul tells us this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And if you think you might be able to live a double life, somehow being friends with the world and both having fellowship with God, don't be mistaken. The scriptures are abundantly clear time and time again. Listen to James 4.4. He says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. John tells us something very similar in 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So if you are an exile in this world, then the world and its ways will be strange to you and even repulsive to you. Which leads us to number two. If you are an exile in the world, then the world will hate you. The church needs to come to grip with this because so many people come to Jesus thinking that in coming to Jesus, they're going to live their best life now. And by a good life, they have no intention of suffering in this life. Now, don't get confused. Those who come to Jesus, oh, it is good. You are blessed if you are one of his children. But don't think that means you will not suffer. This is what Peter even says in this letter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Suffering for the Christian is not strange. Even our Lord told us that we would be hated. John 15, 19, and 20, he said, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the, world, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they, persecuted, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Suffering for Christ is a reality that we must come to grips with. Suffering for Christ is a reality for Christians all around the world today, and it's an increasing reality for us even here in America. And for some of us, we know what it means to suffer for Christ, even if it's not to the point of shedding blood. But if the world loves you, then perhaps it's because you look more like the world than you do like Christ. If this is true of you, then listen to the words of our Lord in Matthew 5. He said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that when they see your good works, they'll give glory to your Father who is in heaven. But don't make any mistake about thinking that in seeing their good works, they're going to love you for it. For right before he said this, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Understand this, as an exile, you will be hated by the world and you will be disgusted by the things that the world tries to offer you, which leads to number three. If you are in exile, the, the, the world will feel less and less like home. And this should come as no surprise to us. Because as Paul said in Philippians, he said our citizenship is in heaven. That's our home. 
not this world. And so we seek Christ and his kingdom. We pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And we long to see the appearing of Christ. And so we say, come Lord Jesus. Christian, know that if you are in exile in this world, then this world will be of little comfort to you. After all, our Lord himself said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So we should not be surprised to find that as exiles, this isn't our home either. But before we think wrongly about what it means to be, belong to God, what it means to even be an exile, let us continue. For we are not merely exiles. Listen again to Peter. He's writing to those who are elect exiles. I told you there are two things I want us to understand this morning. And that's our relationship with the world. We're exiles, but also I want us to see our relationship with God. We are his elect. And so if you are an elect exile, know this, you have been elected by God. Now, I'm not sure which part of the sermon is going to be harder for some of us to hear this morning. Whether it's going to be harder for us to hear that you're going to be hated by the world or whether it's going to be harder to hear that you have been elected by God. I know many of us have fully embraced the doctrine of election, but I have no doubt that there are many here who have not yet settled on the doctrine of election. If you're here this morning, you find the doctrine of election difficult to embrace, then I would simply ask you to be a lover of Scripture and a lover of truth. If you love the Word, you will not stray far. I'm not asking you to believe something just because I believe it. Rather, I, I want you to be a lover of Scripture. And if you are a lover of Scripture, you will wrestle with difficult concepts such as election. And as a lover of truth, we wrestle for words and concepts in God's Word, not because we just like to think things that we haven't thought before, but because we want to see realities that God has given us in His Word. And one of those realities is, is that He has chosen us. He has elected us. Now, if you're not convinced that this doctrine of election is even biblical, it might help just briefly for you to know a little bit about my background. I grew up in a Christian home, but I did not grow up hearing about election or predestination or Calvinism or anything along these lines. In fact, I didn't know about these terms until I went to Bible college and I started learning that there's other Christians who believe things that I never have even heard of. And at first, I'll admit, I was quite opposed to the doctrine of election and anything that fell under the banner of Calvinism. But as a lover of Scripture and truth, and after years of wrestling, I have come to love the doctrine of election. Not because I love Calvin, but I love the doctrine of election because I believe the doctrines that are associated with Calvinism or the doctrines of grace or whatever else you might want to call them, I believe they are biblical. So by all means, don't take my word for it. Listen to Peter and see the realities that he wants us to see here behind this word, elect. This word elect simply means chosen. In fact, it's used three other times by Peter in this letter, and every other time it's used except for here, it's, our translators put the word chosen. Take, for example, 2.9. You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. 
that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So elect at its most basic definition, it, it means chosen. And we use it very similarly even in our own language. We elect governing officials by choosing one and not another. But there are more realities behind this word elect than just God choosing. I compared God's election just now with our own election process of electing governing officials, but that comparison quickly breaks down. We elect officials because we think one official is better than another, but this is not the basis of God's election of the saints. The Lord, he chooses not because you are worthy or because of any merit that you have, because there's no goodness in you that God would choose you instead of another. So if you think elect means God thinks you're better than anyone, that's, that's the wrong idea. That's not what we're meaning when we talk about the Lord electing and choosing some. And again, going back to this same illustration of electing an official, we might think, well then, if he doesn't choose us on the basis of merit, then it must just be random. Like a person who simply doesn't know who to vote for, so he just fills out the ballot and votes for someone. As if it's impersonal, random, and without reason. But once again, this is not what we should understand when we talk about God electing a people for his own possession. Listen to how Moses describes God's choosing the nation of Israel. And in fact, the language that Moses used back in Deuteronomy is the exact same language that, that Peter is drawing from. Moses said it this way, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people of his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt." Understand what it means to be elect. It doesn't simply mean to be chosen, either randomly or because of any merit, but rather God elects us because he loves us. So the reason God chose you is because he set his love on you. And so while on one hand you might be hated by the world as, as an exile, know this, you are loved by God. And so we could say with Paul, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Or even as the psalmist says in 118, if the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? So do not despise being an elect exile. You are chosen and loved by God. Sure, men may look down on you. They may hate you. They might even kill you. But if God is for us, who can be against us? If you are among the elect, then you are most blessed. Which leads us to some of our wrestlings. If God chooses, if he elects, not based on anything I've done, not because of anything lovely in myself, how do I know if I am actually among those whom he has chosen. Here I'm telling you this morning that you need to know this about yourself, that you are God's elect. But some of you are just asking, well, how can I know if I am God's elect? 
Well, the first part of verse 2 serves to help us better understand who the elect are. It almost serves as like a, sometimes when I don't know the definition of a word on a computer, I have to like double tap on a word and it pulls up an expanded definition of it. It's kind of what it's doing here. He's explaining what it means to be elect. And so you could say right here in verse 2, this is the making of elect exiles according to God's plan. Look at verse 2. He says that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now right away, this doesn't help us very much with knowing whether or not we are elect. It simply tells us a little bit more about our election. And it's something actually very similar to the very word elect, except it just gives a little bit more light as to what it means. To foreknow simply means that God knew something beforehand. And yet even it means more than that. There, the very root of this word foreknow is the word know. It's the very same root there in English as well. The root of this word is to know. And yet we know this. Yes, God knows you, but he knows everything. He's omniscient. There is nothing that is a mystery to him. And when Jesus said, I never knew you, it's not because he didn't know about those to whom he was casting out of his presence, but rather, when he says, I never knew you, he's saying there is no intimacy with him. That's this word know. It has intimate connotations. So to know carries with it the intimacy of God's love. So now understand this word know with the word foreknow. He, he knew us. He loved us from ages past. The Father, he determined our redemption before time began. That's what we're learning here in verse 2. Before we even were, not even before we did anything good, not even before we had faith in Jesus, but before we even were, God foreknew us, and he set his love on us. I love how it, it's put in Ephesians 1. It says that the Lord chose us, in him before the foundations of the world. That's before even sin entered the world. God, he set his love on us. He chose us as his own. So our status as God's elect is does the very opposite thing of puffing us up with pride. Being God's elect has nothing to do with any goodness in yourself, but the goodness of God that he would have mercy on anyone should humble us. Because your election did not start with you. Your election started with God. And yet I still haven't answered the question, have I? How do I know I'm among God's elect? Well, the next part of this, I think, will give us further clarity on who God's elect are. You, the elect are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And he adds, in the sanctification of the Spirit... What I want us to see here is the Spirit is the demonstration. He demonstrated the redemption that was won for us, that was, was given to us when he, he chose us, when he foreknew us. The Spirit demonstrated your redemption in time. So if his foreknowledge happens outside of time, now the Spirit sanctifying us happens here within time. Something we've experienced if you are a Christian. Now, 
I need to get some clarification on what this word sanctification means because most of the time when we think of sanctification, we think of it as being the ongoing process of growing in holiness and being made more and more like Jesus, something that we'll never complete in this lifetime. It's a lifetime process and only when we die and are with Christ and we're glorified will we ever be without sin. That's what we think of when we think of sanctification as this lifelong process of becoming more and more holy. But I don't think this is how the word is being used here by Peter. Listen to the way one scholar, John Murray, he reminds us that that sanctification is more than just this ongoing process, at least the way the Bible uses it. He says this, the fact that it's too frequently overlooked that in the New Testament, the most characteristic terms that refer to sanctification are used not of a process, our normal idea of sanctification, but of a once-for-all definitive act. So there's a difference. We, we talk about progressive sanctification. That's the ongoing process of being made more holy. But I think what, what Peter's talking about is what we call definitive sanctification. That is a, a thing that happens in time, in history. It's, it's kind of... Uh, never mind, I don't want to say it. But this is, this is something we experience, and it happens all at once. And, and what it is is that the Spirit, when He comes to us, He sets us apart. That's what sanctify means. It means to be made holy, to be made set apart. And so the Spirit literally takes us out of the world and sets us apart for God's purpose. Something we experience when the Word is preached and when it is heard. And when that hearing is accompanied with faith, it is owing to the fact that the Spirit has sanctified us. He has set us apart for his own possession. And that's what it seems that Peter has in mind here. And so while the Father chooses before time, now in time we experience this Spirit's work that we call sanctifying, setting apart those whom the Father has foreknown. It's helpful maybe to hear how Martin Luther explained his understanding of the Holy Spirit. When writing about the third article in the Apostles' Creed, he said this about the line that we confess every single Sunday, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Luther wrote, I believe that by my own understanding or strength, I cannot believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. That is apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we've experienced. If you believe in Jesus Christ, It is owing to the fact that the Spirit has set you apart. And the reason the Spirit has set you apart is because the Father foreknew you. So how can I know if I'm chosen by God? I ask you these questions. Does the world in its ways seem strange to you? And are you longing for Christ's return? It is owing to the fact that you have been chosen by God. And more so, we see even more evidence of this. Look again at verse 2. We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit. And now we find out the purpose for his election and sanctification. It is for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Peter seems to be drawing language from the Old Testament once again. Exodus 24 describes the covenant that God is making with Israel. Listen to Exodus 24, 7 and 8. Then he, that's Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of all the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient 
And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, how did it turn for Israel, right? They said, we're going to obey. And yet we know they didn't obey because they needed better blood than the blood of animals. And our covenant has better blood than the blood of lambs or bulls. For we have the Lamb of God who was slain for us so that we can obey. Which is the third thing I want us to see. The Son died with a design in your redemption. What Peter's saying here is Christ died for your obedience. Yes, he died for the forgiveness of sins. This is true. His blood has cleansed us and washed us. But more than this, Peter seems to be pointing to us that this is blood that purchased your obedience. Listen to how Peter puts it in verse 18 and 19 here in the same chapter. He says, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Again, that's the the old man. You were ransomed, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Which is another one of the wonderful themes of 1 Peter. That as elect exiles, we are called to a new way of living. That we are called to be holy as God is holy. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 14-16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who calls you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Understand this, elect exiles. Understand this, Christians, brothers and sisters. Your obedience is not a condition of your election. Rather, Our obedience is the purpose of our election. God chose us for obedience so that we would obey him. And the way this is done is through the blood of Christ that is applied to the life of the believer who is in this new covenant relationship with God. So let's ask that question again. How can I know if I am among God's elect I talked about feeling strange in the world because of the Spirit setting us apart. But more than that, do you love God? All the law and the prophets are summed up in this one word, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you love God? Because if you don't, then you are not obeying God. But if He has chosen you, then he has set you apart, and he has set you apart for this purpose, that you would obey. And what a wonderful thing it is to be obedient to our Lord, not in order to earn salvation, but to have fruit that is the evidence of the salvation that God has accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. The doctrine of election might cause some of us to be uneasy, but understand this, the doctrine of election, it is a comfort Because of this, your redemption in the first place did not depend on you, but it began with God. And if it began with God, then certainly he will complete the work in us. Redemption from beginning to end, from his electing us, to him, his calling us out from among all peoples, to us 
even obeying. It is all a gracious act of God. And so what we need, if we are going to be elect exiles, if we are elect exiles, what we need is an abundance of God's grace. And this is exactly why Peter is writing to us. He writes the very end of 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. We need a multiplication of God's grace and peace. Because you will face trials and difficulties as you seek to live for Christ in this world. We need grace and peace to be multiplied to us because the world may not understand or even accept our values and belief. And we will feel like strangers or outsiders in this world. But take heart. You are not alone in exile. God has set his love upon you and he has chosen you out from among all people so that you would belong to him. And he is with you to give you grace and peace every step along the way. So to that end, let us pray and ask him for more of his grace and peace. Father, we do thank you for choosing us, for your love that you set upon us even before the foundations of the earth. We thank you that we are yours and you are ours. Lord, would you keep us in your love and forgive us for the times where we're tempted to love this world that is passing away. Forgive us even for the times where we are afraid of, of what people might think. But Lord, would you strengthen our faith Cause us to be bold in the face of all of the trials that we are going to face this week. And Lord, we're going to come back time and time again because we are not satisfied with the grace that we've received yesterday. We need more of it. And so would you fill us with your grace? Give us more of your spirit and be glorified in our life, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.